0: It is squishy. It's light. So it's not spaghetti-like. White
1: matter, it contains the wires that connect different parts of the brain within itself and then also down to the spinal cord.
2: The hippocampus is apparently supposed to look like a seahorse. When you roll it up, it looks sort of like a jelly roll or something. This
3: is Playing With Marbles. I'm Katie Jensen. Right now, the sound of my voice is traveling down your ear canal and battering against your eardrums. Those tiny drums are beating against a series of tiny bones, the body's version of an amplifier. They're magnifying those vibrations before they ripple across the liquid in your snail-shaped cochlea. Inside that shivering ear goop are bunches of hair cells riding those waves to generate electrical signals, signals that travel down the auditory nerve, your very own ox cable. At the end of that cable is a big, squishy, pinkish-gray walnut, the brain. There are over 7 trillion nerves in our body, our very own fleshy internet buzzing with electrical impulses going to and from our brain but they're all useless without that melon-sized lump of gray matter to process those signals. I'm the proud owner of one of those lumpy walnuts, and of all the various bits of me, the brain is the one I find the hardest to understand. Maybe it's because I have to use my brain to understand my brain. Now I'm thinking about my brain, thinking about my brain, thinking about my brain, thinking
4: about my brain.
3: Back in the room, Katie. Back in the room. Hi, I'm Katie Jensen, and my brain doesn't really work how it's supposed to work. I have OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. It's a form of neurodivergence, meaning my brain doesn't act like a typical brain, but I'm not so sure there is such a thing as neurotypical. There's still so much to learn about how we all process and store information. Canada is a great place for me to do this investigation. This country is behind some groundbreaking research. In Montreal, for example, we have a whole building full of brains.
0: What you hear when you get in, it's noise from the freezers that uh, make a lot of noise because we have like dozens of freezers. And then that's where all the frozen tissue it's, uh, its stored. On your right, you would have the room where we do dissections.
3: And scientists who watch TV with monkeys at Western University.
0: You can show them a movie You can
4: show a human the exact same movie, and then you can look for the commonalities between the brains in the marmoset and the human. And there are plenty.
3: As well as tons more stuff that isn't quite as weird, but is definitely super important, like figuring out how to do science together better.
4: We're spread over 5,000 kilometers, so we've had to learn to collaborate.
3: So... With the help of some friends at Brain Canada, I'm going to pick the brains of a few very smart people who can tell me how this mysterious organ works. Their job is to enable researchers like Dr. Sheena Jocelyn.
2: The fundamental goal of having a brain is it allows us to learn from past experience to guide our next step, you know? I know that, you know, you shouldn't do this because something really bad will happen. And I know that the last time I did this, something really good happens. And that allows me to direct my next step.
3: Dr. Jocelyn is a professor of psychology and physiology at the Hospital for Sick Children and the University of Toronto, and as well as being fun to chat to, she studies how we make memories. I figured if I'm gonna learn a bunch of stuff about brains, she can help me remember all that stuff. So I'm gonna ask a question, and as you listen to her answer, you can think about how your brain is doing all these things right now, committing this information to a tiny little corner of your memory. That question is, how does our brain actually form a memory?
2: So that's a really important question. I think it's important on so many different levels, not only to understand, you know, this amazing, you know, two pound or whatever organ in our brain, which is arguably the most complex thing in the universe, and also because it's, we can't possibly try and treat a memory disorder unless we know how memories are normally formed and stored in the brain. So, how is a memory formed? That's a really good question. And my lab and a bunch of other labs have been doing some really, I think, interesting work trying to get to the answer to that question. We haven't figured it out exactly yet, but we are making some major strides. So, we know that not all brain cells are important in encoding or forming any one particular memory. We know that only a small subset are, which is really important. That means that our brains can store millions and millions of memories by having unique subsets of brain cells important in encoding each one. And what happens is that when an important event happens, and I'm talking mostly about episodic memory. So the memory of an episode rather than the how to ride a bike memory, which is a different kind of memory, but sort of the memory of what happened, you know, last Tuesday when this person cut you off and you're you know, driving down the street and, and you have a very vivid memory of that for whatever reason. What happens is that there's a certain number of brain cells that happen to be more excitable than other brain cells at the time. And these cells seem to be really important in encoding that memory. So when I'm relating the, the story of this person who cut me off, this really, really horrible driver, when I'm telling you know my friends about this, what happens in my brain is that these same cells become active when I'm relaying the details of this you know person's crummy driving. And these same cells are always going to be holding this type of memory for me. So
3: episodic memory is how we store stuff that's happened. And that's stored in cells distributed around the brain. And it's different from general knowledge, like remembering that you shouldn't touch a hot stove. That kind of memory is stored in the neocortex, the outermost layer of the brain, which gives it that walnutty look. So we can think of our brain as this huge library full of all of our memories stored in different areas. But what does every library need? It needs a librarian, and it needs an index.
2: So those are my two favorite brain regions. And I really think that everybody needs to have a favorite brain region. The hippocampus is apparently supposed to look like a seahorse. When you roll it up, it looks sort of like a jelly roll or something. People have been studying that for a long, long time. And there's been some you know, huge insights made into the role of the hippocampus in memory by um, our own Brenda Milner, you know, Canadian Brenda Milner, over 100 years old and still rocking it in science. For five decades, Brenda Milner studied one of the most famous
3: patients in neuroscience ever, Henry Malayason. In the 1950s, Henry had debilitating epilepsy and volunteered for an experimental treatment. He had his hippocampus removed. Now the treatment was a success. He lived for 55 years without any more seizures, but it had a very big unintended side effect. Henry couldn't store new episodic memories. Without his hippocampus, he could only remember things that had happened to him before the surgery. That's how we know the hippocampus is what processes new information and turns it into memories. It's our library's index. So we've got all this information stored, but we need someone to tell us what's important. A librarian. And our brain's librarian is a fiery little character, the amygdala.
2: So that's um, meant to look like an almond, which apparently um, amygdala is um, Latin for almond. And the amygdala is really important mostly in emotionally charged memories, so not just everyday memories, but memories that have like a biological significance, you know, events that make you angry, events that make you happy, those sort of emotionally charged memories.
3: We tend to be better at remembering stuff that has emotions attached to it by our angry little almond-shaped librarian. She's in there recommending memories to make you joyful, memories to make you sad, memories to make you laugh. The amygdala works with the hippocampus so we can actually filter and use our vast trove of memories. Unlike most librarians, though, the amygdala and hippocampus are open to some gentle coercion.
2: Our memories are not like this perfect snapshot of what happened. So I can color my memory. I forget to tell people that it was me that changed lanes badly and not this other driver. I forget all these different things in a memory. So it's not a perfect recollection of exactly what went down.
3: Because of Henry and Brenda, we also know that motor memory, things like playing an instrument or dancing, is different to episodic memory. These memories are controlled by the basal ganglia, deep within the brain, and the cerebellum which is the bit at the bottom, at the back end of the brain. Motor memory is really interesting, too, though, and that's what Dr. Julien Doyan and his team at the Brain Imaging Center in Montreal are studying.
1: When you start playing the piano, or you start playing the guitar, obviously, at the beginning, one needs to think about the position of the fingers, but with time, it becomes implicit. You don't need to think about it. You just do it, right? And so that's what is called procedural memory.
3: Right, so what I'm thinking of as motor memory is called procedural memory. It's the memory of procedures that we repeat so much that our knowledge of them becomes subconscious.
1: It's different from the declarative memory that we know where facts and events can be forgotten and learned, but also can be forgotten. With procedural memory, the memory is more long-lasting.
3: So declarative memory is stuff I forget easily, like the capital of Belgium, whereas procedural memory is, well, it's like riding a bike. If you're feeling like that's a lot to remember, I am too. I'm going to need some help. Surely there's a way to hack my memory and supercharge my hippocampus.
2: The best thing is to A, don't multitask. Multitasking is the enemy of memory. If you're doing 20 things at once, it's no wonder you can't remember where you left your keys. Your attention is divided and you just don't encode things very well. Well, that's kind of boring. Number two, get a lot of sleep. Don't get stressed out eat healthy, exercise, do all those, you know, really, really boring things. Okay, stick
3: with me, though, because there's also this cool phenomenon called state-dependent memory where you remember something best if you're in the same situation or state
2: as when you learn it. So as a professor, I tell my students, if you are going to study while having a drink of alcohol, you better be taking the test while you're having a drink of alcohol because you always want to be in the same brain state. I would totally drink with Dr. Jocelyn, but she is joking, I think. That's a joke because I never want anyone to do that. But you should be in the same brain state as when the memory was formed, and that makes it easier to recall. So it's um, often said that people that are sad and depressed tend to remember sad and depressing memories, and it's like a vicious circle, and that's true. When you're very sad and depressed, you tend to think of very sad and depressing memories. And when you're happy, you tend to think of pretty happy memories. It can be a very vicious circle, but it's all due to biology. It's all because we can remember things better when our brain state is in the, the state it was when we were encoding something.
3: And if you're looking to learn something that makes use of your motor functions, Dr. Gillian Doyon has been doing some research into procedural memories that might help us do some brain hacking.
1: It seems like sleep is critical for the consolidation of this form of memory. But it's not all phases of sleep. What we found is that during the night, we go to different stages of sleep, right? From stage one, two, and three, and REM. We'll repeat those phases during the night. And so a whole cycle of sleep will take about, on average, about 90 minutes. And so you have first the stage one, stage two and three, what is more profound and then REM sleep and then it starts again.
3: And there's one sleep stage that is crucial to consolidating procedural memories.
1: We find that it's mainly in stage two that you can see that there is a reactivation of the memory trace during the night that will then allow a better performance the next day, better consolidation of the memory.
3: And because we know that memories are being consolidated in this second stage of sleep, we can try out some new ways to make those motor skills stick even more.
1: We've done a study, for example, when we then presented olfactory stimulus, the odor of a rose.
3: So basically, Dr. Doyon figured out that if you smell something while you learn a procedural memory, for example, sniffing roses while you learn to play the piano, and then you also smell roses while you sleep, then your brain will consolidate those memories better and you'll learn faster. So don't wake up before you smell the roses. There's still so much for us to learn about memory, though. And luckily, we have a few of our very own human hippocampi, like Dr. Sheena Jocelyn, who are hard at work processing new information about brains to store in our collective memory.
2: I really love my research. I find that it's really fascinating trying to understand how the brain learns and remembers things. To me, is like this real fundamental question. It's like this huge mystery. And I'm a, I'm a fan of big puzzles, and this is like the biggest puzzle ever. I'm really excited about learning exactly which brain cells can hold different sorts of memories. I think that that is really um, a cool thing. So these theories have been around, I mean, Aristotle and way back, thought that the brain was really important in encoding memories. But it's only until, you know, really recently that we got these tools that allowed us to manipulate individual brain cells. So we can use this thing called optogenetics.
4: The cells of your body, if you modify them genetically, they will start producing these new proteins. And they're amazing proteins because they respond to light. And hence, people have you know, uh, coined this term, optogenetics.
3: That's Dr. Yves DeConnick. He's director of the Servo Brain Research Center at Université Laval and a professor of psychiatry. He studies the brain's wiring, the neurons. Brace yourselves for a literal light bulb moment. Dr. DeConnick alters the DNA of brain cells so
2: that they respond to light. So basically by shining different wavelengths of light, so a blue light or a red light, they are different wavelengths, we can shine light inside the brain of rodents, and we can turn different cells on and off. So we can make a rodent recall a memory falsely or have this memory apparently disappear. And it's at the will of the experiment. You turn this light on, you get the memory, you turn this light on, you don't get the memory. It's like, you know, science fiction type things.
3: And that's what optogenetics is. It's a way of figuring out which wires are connected to what. And it's more precise than what we had to work with before.
4: Imagine yourself uh, as in a, someone who's trying to debug a computer component, uh, a circuit, a computer circuit. You have it in front of you, you're an engineer, and you say, okay, I need to understand how it's working well. What you do is you try to f- measure electrical activity in different places, and you go in and you try to stimulate this, activate this part of the circuit and see how the other parts of the circuit are functioning. Well, we're trying to do the same with the brain. And people have been doing this for a long time, using electrodes, so you can insert a little wire or an, a, a little piece of glass that has a liquid inside so that you can pass current. You can insert that in different brain areas and you can stimulate. But when you insert a wire in the brain and you stimulate, the big problem is that you're stimulating everything. So it's a bit of a crude approach.
3: So it's less invasive than how we used to figure this stuff out, but the mice still need to have a piece of fiber optic cable implanted in their heads. It's probably important for me to say that Canada has super strict regulations around animal testing that the experiments have to adhere to. But the technology right now is still an invasive procedure, not quite as invasive as running an electric current through a wire plug directly into a brain.
4: But now we can do it in a much, much more gentle way with light, and we can do it in a genetically specific way. That means only certain parts of your circuit will produce those ion channels So that when you flash light, only those parts of the circuit will be activated.
3: So how do we actually alter the DNA of brain cells?
4: We actually go and use viruses.
3: Viruses? Uh Uh-oh.
4: Of course, people hear viruses, oh, uh, those are dangerous and so on. They're infectious and so on. There are virus or viral vectors that are unable to reproduce themselves. So they can't be infectious. They won't generate a disease. But what a virus is, is nature's exquisite tool to actually inject DNA or RNA inside cells. That's what they do for a living. You know, when you get infection, the virus goes onto the surface of the cell, gets into the cells, or, or there's a hole punched. And, you know, if you, you can imagine that, the DNA is injected. Then that DNA is being reproduced, produces a lot more viruses, and it goes on, the cells explode. Ours don't do that. They don't reproduce. They just inject the DNA, and then it stays there.
3: So where do we get this DNA? We go fishing.
4: It's literally nature that's given it to us, because it's been discovered in nature, is there are molecules, proteins, that are produced by cells that respond to light. They respond to light by being fluorescent. So actually the jellyfish, if you look at them in the dark and you flash a light, a blue light, you will actually see them glowing as green. And they produce these proteins that are fluorescent. And there are scientists about 25 years ago that said, hey, why don't we use this property of these cells that are fluorescent and we... Take out the gene, and we put it into a a cell that we are interested in, and it will produce that protein now.
3: So, to summarize, we take proteins from jellyfish that respond to light, then we use a hacked virus to inject them into a mouse's brain cells, then we shine colored lights on different parts of the mouse's brain to see what happens. I mean, there's definitely more to it than that, but those are the Coles notes. It's all very cool and sci-fi sounding, but what's the point?
2: I'm often asked that question, and it's usually preceded by, you know, the studies that you do are, you know, really interesting, but how is this going to help my uncle who has Alzheimer's or my aunt who has Parkinson's disease, and we really need better, you know, therapies right now, and how is what you're doing going to benefit them? And I like to say is, well, it probably won't benefit them right now. I'm not going to spin this. It's entirely true that, you know, as of this week, as of next week, what I do is probably not going to benefit your aunt or your uncle. But without the sort of things that I do, new treatments will never be developed. Yes, it is slow to go from fundamental research up to treatments and even prevention. But without doing this fundamental Research, we will never be able to have treatments, much less prevention strategies. It's only by understanding how the brain works that we can ever hope to come up with treatments. Otherwise, we're just sort of shooting blindly. And you don't want somebody shooting blindly at your uncle or your aunt. You really want knowledge to be guiding things. You don't want, you know, these things that haven't been tried, that haven't been tested, to be tested out on them. So it's really important that we understand that this fundamental work that we and other labs do isn't going to pay off right away. And without doing this very, very fundamental, very, very basic research, we wouldn't have any insights into how to treat people at all.
3: How many years do you think we are away? And maybe this is easier to speculate in decades, but in terms of implanting memories or wiping memories, like are we 30 years away from this, 50 years away from this, or five years away from this?
2: Yeah, that's a really um, interesting question. I'm going to say we're about 10 years away from this. I think the technology is getting better. I mean, it's right now very invasive. And I think that along with sort of developing the technology, we also need to develop the ethics of this. I don't want our our results to be turned into sort of like a cosmetic surgery for your memory. Have a bad date. We'll get rid of that. Don't worry. Call us that. We don't want that. We think it's really important that we think about the the sort of ethical implications of all of our research. And we think that this type of, you know, getting rid of a memory or dampening down a memory might be super important in the case of PTSD, where people are traumatized, where these uh, memories interfere with um, their functioning. But we don't want to have people only have really happy, lovely memories and get rid of everything else. We would never learn from our experience. We would keep, You know doing the same mistake over and over again and um, I think it's really important that we remember both the good things and the bad things and that's a part of life and that's a part of living
3: so that's one very futuristic way of messing around with your brain but as Dr. Jocelyn said it's still pretty invasive and we have people with conditions that need treatment right now if we can avoid sticking stuff into a living brain we probably should One thing we do have some emerging non-invasive treatments for is stroke.
5: A stroke basically is caused by an occlusion, by a blockage of a blood vessel that supplies the brain.
3: Dr. Alexander Thiel is the director of the Comprehensive Stroke Center in Montreal. If he had a stroke, he would be the guy you'd want to lead your treatment.
5: And as a consequence of this blockage of this blood vessel by a blood clot, the brain tissue dies and it's gone irrevocably.
3: And if we lose a part of the brain, we can lose the functions that part of the brain controls.
5: Depending on which area of the brain is affected by the blockage, you will have different deficits. For example, in most right-handed individuals, the uh, language function is mainly lateralized to the left side of the brain. So if you have, let's say, say a left-sided artery blockage, then it's more likely that you're going to be aphasic, that you are either unable to express written or spoken language or to understand it. So you could still be able to speak, but you would have difficulties understand what other people say.
3: So if that part of the brain is gone, that sounds pretty bleak. But there's something really amazing about brains. They're malleable. If part of a brain stops working, another part of that brain can pick up the slack. It's not always immediate, but our squishy walnut lump does its best to work with what's left, rewiring and reshaping the neural pathways to make up for injuries. This is called neuroplasticity, and it's what Dr. Thiel spends a lot of his time researching.
5: So, for example, if you compromise a certain region in the brain, but not completely, then suddenly the remaining neurons fire more. To make up for the number of the lost neurons, hmm? this would be compensatory hyperactivity. That would be one tool. Another tool would be that um, the dendrites of the neurons spread out and they make new connections which they didn't have before in order to reroute information around the compromised brain area.
3: The brain is okay at this, it does its best, but it won't make up for really big losses. In fact, Strokes are the leading cause of disability in Canada, and that's something Dr. Thiel and his team are trying to improve. They study ways to stimulate the brain and help it out with that rehabilitation process. They're working on a pioneering treatment called TMS, transcranial magnetic stimulation. As the name suggests, TMS uses magnets to stimulate the brain, and unlike optogenetics, there's no need to get inside your skull. We're still not sure why it worked for this, but TMS has already been used to treat symptoms of
5: depression. So before the patient comes into our TMS lab, they first go to an MRI scanner Mm. to get their brain scanned. And then we take this MRI, this picture of the brain, and we put it into the navigation system that tells us where to stimulate. So then the patient is, uh, sits down in a chair, similar to a dentist chair, You have to, <laughs> like this. And then we attach certain uh, markers um, with a sticking tape on their forehead. And we have an infrared camera. And then we tell the infrared camera where the patient head is positioned in the room. And then we tell the system which points of the patient head correspond to which points of the MRI that we've done before. Mm. And then as we move around the patient's head, we can exactly see over which brain region we are. And once we've localized this, we can then bring the coil, the, the magnetic coil into place over that area and then start the stimulation session. How
3: long do they typically last?
5: The therapeutic stimulation is about 20 to 30 minutes. It takes a little bit about 10, 20 minutes preparation because the intensity is always individualized to the patient. So we need to determine what we call motor threshold. So how much intensity do we need, for example, to see the hand moving when we give a pulse? That's the motor threshold. And then we take a certain percentage of the motor threshold with which we then stimulate the target area. So this is a little preparatory thing that takes about 10, 15 minutes. And then we do the stimulation itself. And then immediately after the stimulation, the the patient is handed over to the therapist to get the speech and language therapy or physiotherapy or whatever we we are planning to do.
3: Do patients report feeling anything as the magnet polarity is running through their skulls?
5: So, of course, when we determine this motor threshold, they feel the contractions in the fingers when we get Mm -hmm. to the hot spot that we are looking for. Otherwise, when we do the stimulation itself, what they may feel, these are contractions of the scalp muscles because, of course, they are also (laughs) stimulated. So they may feel a muscle twitching or something like that. Some people feel a little bit of like a tension headache after that, a little bit of, you know, muscular pain, but which usually um, goes away on its own.
3: Dr. Teal's is working on bringing TMS into mainstream use. For now, it's still kind of experimental for stroke treatment, but it looks like doing it repeatedly could help the brain recover. And that's the thing. We know lots of stuff about the brain, but we don't know enough. Scientists are trying to solve those mysteries, but the way science works hasn't always been the best at getting important stuff done.
4: It's a very competitive process. You only give money to the best, and we've been really rewarding flashy discovery research. But there is a big layer of science that needs to build also the tools that the community is going to use, the database of information that the broad community is going to be used. There's this layer of activity that's less glamorous, I would say, but that's as important for the community for science to progress.
3: And that's where Brain Canada comes in. All the researchers we've talked to and will talk to in this show have received funding from Brain Canada for their work. Part of that comes from the government, but lots of it comes from wonderful people like you who contribute by donating. That money is so important. Without it, a lot of this research might not happen, but it's also so important that researchers use that money smartly. Things like MRI scanners are really expensive to run, which makes data expensive to gather. Brain Canada has an answer to that. Open science. It's a transparent, collaborative way of working. A whole school of scientific thought. But you can boil it down to sharing your work with anyone who wants it, for free. The president and CEO of Brain Canada is Dr. Vivian Poupon, one of the movement's biggest proponents.
0: There's a dire need for new treatments to treat brain illnesses. It's a real race against time. And there was a lot of frustration from our clinicians and our researchers not to have solution to offer to the patient that were coming through our doors every day. She used to be part of the team running the Montreal
3: Neurological Institute Hospital, AKA the Neuro, where she successfully pushed to make the organization the first ever academic institute to adopt open science.
0: The, the complexity of the brain It's so complex that it's not one person who can solve that mystery. You can find the discoveries that will really uh, lead to a breakthrough. And so open science becomes a prerequisite to understand it because you need to gather forces, you need to share data, you need to share tools uh, to work together. This way of working has its
3: roots back as far as the beginning
0: of medical journals in the
3: 18th century. But only recently, with a nudge from Dr. Poupon and others, have
0: scientists begun to truly embrace just putting their work out there for free, even when the work flops. I think one important aspect of open science is actually how to share your failures. Data by itself is something you try. You know, you had an hypothesis and it generated data that you make available. Your hypothesis might actually been wrong. Your data is still there it's still relevant and can still be used by someone else to actually ask another question. And so you already save some money there because you're only generating the data once and not twice or even 10 times or hundreds of times, which is what's actually happening. And so that's, I think, one very positive thing. The other is that you can actually share your data and say, have a way to openly say, and which is also something you you want to do uh, under Open Science Principle, I tried this hypothesis, I tried this experiment, and it did not work. You saved time and money to all the other scientists who would have been interesting to ask the exact same question. So I think in some specific fields, it's a no-brainer. Pun intended?
3: Thanks so much for listening to the first ever episode of Playing With Marbles. We've had so much fun making the show and playing with our own marbles. There's loads more where this came from, so hit the follow button to catch the next episode. If you enjoyed Playing With Marbles, we would love it if you left us a rating or a little review. It helps other people find the show too, as does sharing the podcast with a friend. We want everyone to know just how much cool brain research is being done here in Canada, so help us spread the word. Playing With Marbles is a Vocal Fry Studios production in partnership with Brain Canada. The executive producer is Jay Coburn. Our associate producer is Max Collins. I'm Katie Jensen. Thanks for playing.